The third paper is by JJ Gerger of CIS UCL. It's entitled, Whose Voice Is It Anyway? Film Dubbing in the Soviet Republics. My name is JJ Gerger and I've just entered my third and final year PhD at CIS. Uh, my thesis concerns a body of films made at the Dobzhenko Film Studio in Kiev um, in the 1960s. This was a remarkable decade for Ukrainian cinema, particularly at the Dobzhenko Studio. Under a new management and influenced by the cultural climate of Khrushchev's Thor, the studio began to attract and nurture a younger generation of filmmakers, and a new style of filmmaking emerged, which has since been termed the School of Ukrainian Poetic Cinema. Marked by a blend of fiction and non-fiction, these films are shot on location, involve the participation of local, non, uh, local residents, non-actors, and are often inspired by literary classics or local legends and are concerned with issue of cultural heritage. Under pressure to produce films on a contemporary theme, these filmmakers were soon criticised for turning towards the past and for what was deemed a fascination with ethnographic detail at the expense of developing the psychology of the characters. So my research investigates the often cited ethnographic quality of these films and puts forward the concept of an experiential ethnographic modality in which the link between the story that's performed, the people who perform it, and the place of its performance is maintained. My research is interdisciplinary, so in terms of my theoretical framework, I draw upon both film studies and visual anthropology in order to provide a new interpretation of the films of the school and to contribute towards an understanding of the culture of which they are a product. My methodological approach includes both archival research and oral interviews, and between January and September of this year, I visited both Russia and Ukraine. In Moscow, I visited three archives, the Rogali, um, the National Film Archive, Gus Fond, and the Documentary Film and Photo Archive. Um, in Kiev, I visited uh, the Central State Archive Museum of Art and Literature, so the equivalent of Rogali, which is the top picture, and you can see a particularly beautiful place to work. Um, I also visited the Dobzhenko Center, so the equivalent of Gustavo Fond, although you can't really compare the two in terms of funding and facilities, and um, the Dobzhenko Film Studio itself, which has a museum on its grounds. Um, in addition to this, they were all in Kiev. In addition to this, I also um, undertook a period of fieldwork in the Carpathian villages, where a number of the films I'm researching were shot. And during this time, I interviewed some of the non-professional participants of the films. Um, and it was this non-archival strand which dictated the ordering of my fieldwork. I was better placed to find them, not least know what to ask them about, after I'd done my archival work, and I didn't really fancy trekking around the Carpathians in winter. So I went to Moscow first. Um, to give you some idea of the kinds of material I was accessing, I can roughly break it down into three strands. Firstly, the films themselves. Although I had a list of all the films produced in the, by the studio in the period in question, for the most part I had no idea what kind of films they were. Um, I knew the director, the cameraman, sound operator, whether or not they were interesting to me, but that was about it. Um, so in Moscow and Kiev I watched quite a lot of films, um, which then fed into the kind of documents I was requesting in the archives. These documents can be divided into two. Um, those which relate to the individual uh, films themselves, so the production accounts, which give me great detail about where the films were shot, how long the crew spent on location, who was filmed, were they non-actors, non non-professionals. Um, and then artistic council discussions, like Claire's mentioned, about uh, the screenplays or the film material um, as it progressed. Secondly, I was also looking at more theoretical discussions uh, relating to film at that time. So, for example, meetings to discuss the role and meaning of sound in film, or technological developments within documentary filmmaking. 
So against that background theme, my talk today is to draw on my own experiences researching Soviet film from a Republican perspective in order to offer some guiding principles governing multi-site multi archival research. And to elaborate upon it, I've chosen to focus today on the issue of dubbing, a topic which I've selected for two reasons. Firstly, it's an area which has increasingly interested me as a direct result of my own archival work. And secondly, it's something which illustrates the complexities of archival research concerning the Soviet republics. It is an echo of the centre-periphery relationship and exposes the variations within those peripheries. So, although dubbing only emerged as an area of interest during the archival work, I had long been interested in the broad issue of sound and film. Sound is an incredibly important element of film, yet one which is surprisingly often overlooked. Since at least the early 1930s, sound, uh, sorry, film has been an audiovisual art. Indeed, as some have rightly pointed out, film has always been accompanied by sound, be that the pianist in the picture hall or the sound of the apparatus itself. Yet the audio of audiovisual is often silent. It should therefore not have come as a surprise when the kindly assistant asked me at Gus Film Fund, oh, do you want sound with that? <laughs> I was watching a film in the editing suite, but the machinery was broken and couldn't play the soundtrack. And my evident lack of amusement, the sound technician was summoned who promptly fixed the machine, which he proudly told me was of German make, but with a sound system custom made at Gus Film Fund. <laughs> However, even with the machine repaired, it soon became apparent that any subtleties in the soundtrack would be missed. I could barely make out the dialogue over the whirring of the machinery itself. Now, please don't get me wrong, Gus Filmerfond is a fantastic place to work, and it was a privilege to be there, something which I appreciated even more after visiting Ukraine. But if you're interested in sound, you should be warned that the editing tables present something of an obstacle, although it is still quite magical handling the reels themselves and learning to negotiate the threading system, which you can just about make out there. The film I was watching was a 1968 film produced at the Dobzhenko studio by the director Roland Sehienko called White Clouds. I've given you the title in English because as I was to find out, it depends on where you are as to which version of the film you see. In Gus Film I found I was watching Bialy Tucci in Ukraine. When I was given a copy of the film by the Dobzhenko film studio, it turned out to be Bialy Khmaru, the Ukrainian and in this case the original version of the film. You see, for films made in the republics and authorised for Soviet release, not just Republican release, a separate Russian version of the film would be made. It would have its own film crew, its own budget, and its own deadline for production. It would then also be assessed by the various film committees and given its own rating. In one case, I was intrigued to discover that the film Anichka, produced at the Dobzhenko studio the same year as White Clouds, received a higher ranking for pay in its Russian dubbed version than in its Ukrainian original version. In the Ukrainian Republic, sometimes the original would be filmed in Russian and then the subsequent dubbed version would be in Ukrainian for internal distribution. In either case, the Ukrainian versions of the films, be those the originals or subsequent dubbed versions, received a limited distribution within the Republic to those western areas of Ukraine which, we should remember, had only very recently become part of the Soviet Union in the 1940s. And the question is, does it really matter which version you see? Or as I put it in the title for my talk, does it really matter whose voice it is? Well, for the, school, the film of the Ukrainian Poetic School, I would argue that it really does matter. These are films which make use of local non-actors, native to the landscapes in which the films are shot and from which the stories themselves have sprung. Time and again, the directors and sound operators from the studio were turning to regional pockets of Ukraine, filling their films and the, with the sounds and dialects of those areas. 
This is not just related to the de development of portable sound recording equipment in the 60s that made the synchronous recording of sound and image more feasible. Even where synchronous sound recording proved impossible, these sound operators were collecting sounds from the local environment for later use in the film, and in one notable case, flying the local non-actors all the way to Kiev from far-flung villages at the borders of Ukraine at great expense for the sole purpose of recording the sound of their voices. Pointedly in the film White Clouds, that I watched in this film of fond, the narrator asks his father, What? Do you not know me by my voice? He's returned to his native village to visit his dying father, whom he's not seen for many years and who does not recognise him. So it is voice that becomes the bearer of memory and by extension of cultural tradition. In this way, the Soviet practice of dubbing Republican films might come to be seen as a form of silencing. When I went to the Carpathians and spoke to one of the surviving Hutzel participants of the film Dovbush, which was produced by the Dovzhenko studio in 59, she remembered how the villagers reacted when they saw the final version of the film in which they had taken part. Although they recognised themselves on screen, they were surprised to discover they were not speaking Pohotsulsky, but Porosiski. So what relevance is all of this for the archives? Well, the first point I'd like to make that when you're researching across multiple sites, or perhaps even more so when you're not, it's important to remember the material you'll find in the centre may, may sound very different elsewhere. Sometimes an alternate perspective, or rather an alternate voice, may tell you something you might otherwise not have heard. Secondly, remember that you won't always have the same facilities or access to materials in different sites. In Gus Filmer Fond, I was given my own room to view the films on the editing table. However, as I explained, I could watch them, but could not really hear them. In Kiev, when I went to the Ukrainian equivalent, the Dovzhenko Center, the facilities were so poor that the material was not in a fit state to be viewed, and the only film I could watch there was a shot-bought video which they showed me on the TV in their open-plan office, whilst they carried on working around me. And similarly, when I turned to the Dovzhenko Film Studio for help, they had no viewing facilities for researchers. However, it did turn out to be a blessing in disguise as they decided to copy onto DVD a number of the films I had no other way of watching and to give them to me for free, which was a real result, not only because I now have my own copies which I can show to other people, but in terms of my pocket. By way of comparison, the documentary film archive in Moscow, which is much more established and therefore geared up for foreign visitors, quoted me a price of 100 euros a minute to copy their material. <laughs> so the 12-minute documentary film I coveted was just out of reach, about £1,000. So I've talked a little about how voices might sound different depending on where you are, literally so in the case of Republican film. It's also worth bearing in mind, though, that you might come across voices, or worse, silence, where you don't expect. I'll illustrate this by talking about some of the paper sources I've consulted. It was in Moscow's Arts and Literature Archive, Regali, that I found the films relating to the All-Union Dubbing Commission, from which I was able to start piecing together the overall picture. And for simplicity, I've kind of categorised it into three strands. Films going to the centre, so dubbing of non-Soviet films into Russian, also of Soviet Republican films into Russian. Uh, films going to the peripheries, so for example, Russian language films from the centre going out to the, the republics, or non-Soviet films to the republics. And films going outside, outside the Soviet Union, so the dubbing of Russian films or Republican films into languages of non-Soviet countries. Uh, the 1960s saw an increase in film production generally, which was mirrored in the number of films being dubbed, as I discovered at Regali. In 1959 alone, there were just over 150 films in our Category 1 here, so films being dubbed into Russian, which made up about 60 to 65% of the films released onto screens that year. 
If we add to this a second category, so films being dubbed into the Republican languages, it more than doubles that figure. And the revenue generated by the distribution of dubbed films in 59 was more than 4 billion rubles. By 1969, the number of dubbed films had risen to around 600 a year. So we can see in the decade that I'm interested in, the number of dubbed films released onto Soviet screens more or less doubled from just over 300 to around 600 a year. This was a considerable industry, the largest component of which consisted of films falling into our first category, so those being dubbed into Russian. So in 1969, 60% of Soviet films being distributed came from the republics. Where were they being dubbed? Well, although the facilities in the Republican studios differed considerably, they did have the technology available to dub their films for all union release. However, the largest share of films being dubbed into Russian was actually taking place in Moscow at the Gorky Film Studio. Moreover, efforts were being made to centralise all the dubbing of films into Russian at this one studio. The reason given for this did not relate to greater efficiency, as you might anticipate, but it was desired in order to remove what was deemed an unwanted local flavour in the accented Russian of the Republican dubbers. It was in a document at Rogali that I heard for myself some of those Republican accents. I was reading a stenography of an all-union meeting on dubbing that took place in April 1969 and discovered that the situation with regard to dubbing varied across the republics themselves. The Baltics, for example, continued to prefer subtitling to dubbing. The Georgian studios couldn't afford to dub many colour films and had to resort to translating direct from the screen. The Uzbek representative complained that despite having a modern languages institute with translators of French and English, for example, they were not to permit it, permitted to dub what he termed progressive foreign films and were only allowed to dub Soviet or Soviet bloc films. It was at this meeting that a representative from Ukraine also spoke up, and so I learned about the specific conditions for dubbing at the Dovzhenko studio. She explained that there were five directors at the studio who specifically worked on dubbing, but they were only given between them 18 films a year. Capacity exceeded demand, which would only be exacerbated by further centralisation. Now, when I consulted the equivalent files at the archive in Ukraine, I couldn't find a copy of the stenography of this meeting anywhere. Perhaps I should have anticipated it, given that at the meeting itself, the Republican representatives were complaining about the fact that not one of them had received the documents from the previous meeting the year before. In any case, I found the most insightful information about dubbing at the Dobzhenko studio, not in Kiev, where I might have expected, but in Moscow. So the point I'd like to make here is that you might not find what you expect, or to put it more positively, you might find things where you don't expect. But researching across multiple sites increases your chances of finding them. Strangely, you might discover more about a particular republic, not within that former republic's archives, but elsewhere, although perhaps we speak loudest when we're away from home. What's more, if you're researching a particular republic, listen out for the voices from the other republics. They'll help put your findings in context and might flag up issues requiring further investigation. The downside to all of this, though, is that you might end up chasing archives. I know that I certainly felt a pull towards the Georgian archives and often lamented, if only I spoke Georgian. On a more practical level, you have to guard against the possibility of duplicating effort. When it can take up to five working days to receive your files, as I found to be the case in Rugali, you really don't want to order something unnecessarily. In the example I've just given you, I specifically tried to locate the same document in a different archive to find any accompanying material. But what you need to avoid doing is ordering the same information accidentally. Different archives have different filing systems, so you need to create your own detailed record of what you have consulted. And from my own experience, I found an Excel spreadsheet, something like this, 
um, worked quite well and enabled me to quickly check for duplication. There's one final point I'd like to make before I finish. In talking about voice, I can't not stress the importance of actually talking to people. A good friend said to me once, why would you go and talk to people when you can find everything in a document in the archive? Well, in my experience, it can be mutually beneficial. In combining my archival research with oral interviews, I found that each approach shed light upon the other. In Kiev, I interviewed the curator of the Dovzhenko Studio Museum, Raisa Prokopenko, a fantastically interesting woman who'd worked in the studio since the 1950s as an editor and acted in a couple of films as well. We were talking about dubbing Ukrainian films and Raisa mentioned in passing that the Georgian studio refused to allow their films to be dubbed anywhere else. I remembered the stenography I'd found in the archive and the efforts to centralise all the dubbing of films into Russian. Raisa reconfirmed that the films from the Georgian studio were only dubbed in Georgia, which meant that in her words, these films kept some of their national colour in the sounds of the actors' voices. Ukrainians, she felt, were disadvantaged in this regard, particularly given that most of them speak perfect Russian anyway. This led me back to the poetic school and their preference for filming in areas with distinctive local dialects. In the archives, I was consulting artistic council discussions of the films, along with the files relating to their production. And here I found the filmmakers arguing against the dubbing of their films based upon the need to preserve the colour of the local dialects. In one case, they succeeded. The film Shelley's of Forgotten Ancestors, produced at the Dobzhenko studio in 64, was not dubbed, and is said to be the only film from the Soviet republics that was shown in its original language across the Union. In this way, as, re as a result of both archival research and oral interviews, I began to conceive of the poetic school as a form of resistance, as an attempt to maintain some kind of autonomy or voice in the face of increasing efforts at centralisation. So that brings me th to the end of my talk. I hope I've given you some insights into the benefits and possibly the challenges of researching across multiple sites. And if you've got any questions, I'd be happy to help. Thank you.